Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It's Wednesday, March 22nd, and it's just me, Tammy, and Brooklyn this week. Um, I'm on day five of COVID, so forgive my voice, but this is what you get. Uh, Jay's off this week. Uh, we have a special interview with Shama Sawant, who about 10 years ago surprised all of us by being elected as a socialist to the Seattle City Council. Um, that sounds probably less radical now than it did then. Um, this was after Occupy Wall Street, but before Bernie first ran for president and many, many years before AOC and others like her went up for office. Shama recently announced that she won't be running for re-election at the end of this year. So we wanted to talk with her about what's next. And what's next is a group called Workers Strike Back, which will be the new focus of Shama's political party, Socialist Alternative. Uh, I've reported with and on Shama in the past. You guys probably know that I'm from that area of the country. Um, and what always sticks out to me is how stubborn and uncompromising she is in her perspective and agenda. And this is, of course, what she's been criticized for from the left and the right. But Shama has put herself behind many policies we discuss on the show. Renters' rights, the rights of unhoused people, corporate taxes, decent minimum wages. Uh, so we really hope you enjoy that discussion. Um, before we get to the interview, uh, I just wanted to give a brief tribute to someone who's been on my mind. Um, he's a journalist who recently passed away, who, to my mind, represents a necessary and increasingly rare species, not just in media, but in life. Chuck Johnson was one of the most important reporters in the state of Montana and a passionate booster of local news and localness. As a friend recently put it, he was the kind of guy you need and want in every place. Someone whose talents could take him anywhere in the world, but who chooses to stay and enriches and enlivens the place that he remains in. I got to know Chuck a little bit while living in Missoula in 2020. And I'd just seen him in February, actually, uh, on a reporting trip a couple of weeks before he passed. Chuck mentored dozens of journalists in Montana and beyond. He helped me, too, um, to make sure that my work was free of the worst kinds of parachuting that you see in national reporting. He was generous and humble and funny. He would meet with anybody. He would treat them all as equals, as peers. And he kept the local news going in Montana, even as the state became more Republican, even as we've been seeing old fascism threaten to crop up around the state. So rest in peace, Chuck, and may we all get to know the places that we're in the way that you knew them. Okay, here's our Time to Say Goodbye interview with Shama Sawant. Lots of good stuff in here. Thanks for listening and supporting the show, and Jay and I will see you next week. Shama, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to see you. Great to see you too, Tammy. I think the last time we talked was a couple of years ago when I was reporting on homelessness in Seattle. Um, and I feel like every time I see you, there's some new incredible development in your life. So um, yeah, it's really great to catch up. So you're home in Seattle right now? I am. 
Cool. And have you been traveling a lot? I know with Workers Strike Back, you guys are doing a lot more sort of national stuff. We are. Since we launched Workers Strike Back in Seattle, we've had launches in other cities as well, including Boston and also Houston. I will be going to New York City uh, pretty soon for the launch there. Okay, cool. Yeah, so we'll see you in town. Um, So before we get into what you guys are doing now with Workers Strike Back, I thought we could take a minute to reflect on what you have done over three terms in the Seattle City Council. Um, Just to recap for folks who may not know your CV, in 2013, you were elected the first socialist in about a century in Seattle onto the council. And you also sort of preceded this wave of um, the rejuvenation of DSA and the election of the squad and a bunch of DSA candidates in local offices around the country. Um, and I remember when you were first elected, it, it just felt like a really big and maybe confusing deal because I think socialism as a kind of vernacular hadn't quite come into the, the sort of regularity it is right now, um, even though we had obviously been through Occupy and we were starting to talk a lot about these issues. But um, maybe just say a little bit about that moment. Like in 2013, why did you even run you had been a software engineer, it, you know, it wasn't necessarily a, a sort of um, a steady line to to what you've been doing since. So, yeah. So why in 2013 did you run for office in Seattle? Yeah, as you said, Tammy, I was a software engineer and then actually I went uh, into graduate studies in economics and I was actually teaching in the Seattle Central College here mm-hmm. in uh, the Central District. And actually, it wasn't my personal decision to run. In fact, the way that my organization, Socialist Alternative, approaches political campaigns, political work, is a good model for what we believe should happen for working people, because the Democratic and Republican parties are not working for the vast majority of American working people. And that's why one of the things that Workers Strike Back, as you mentioned, the organization that the national movement we've launched is calling for a new party for working people. And one of the ideas behind that is that if a political party is genuinely going to serve the interests of working people, really fight alongside movements of working people to win concrete and important victories, then it will need to be a democratically run organization. Unfortunately, the Democratic Party is democratic in name only, and it's not democratic in its actual functioning. And unlike these two big business parties, We don't have candidates deciding that they're going to run for their own careers to build their own resumes. We decide things collectively. Our members have a democratic right to discuss and debate whether or not we should run a campaign, who the candidate should be, what the demands and the program of the campaign should be. So it was through this democratic process, which, of course, I was part of, that we decided that in the wake of the Occupy movement and people feeling working people feeling demoralized that all they were told after Occupy was, oh, well, you know, just hunker down and vote for Obama. We knew that there was an opening for a different kind of politics. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to test that out. And then when we first launched it, we didn't have a conception that we would win. But the kind of fighting <laughs> strategy we used did end up uh, successful against actually a 16-year powerful Democratic incumbent on the council. And yeah. so that's how we came to take office in 2014. Mm-hmm. And say a little bit about Socialist Alternative for people who may not have heard. There's, you know, I think, obviously, lots of things could be said about factionalism on the left and these different branches of, of whatever socialist party or sort of tendency there is. But how would you describe socialist alternative and how did you first get involved with it? 
Socialist alternative is really put put very simply a nationwide organization of social and economic justice activists. And we are unlike DSA, which is um, I would describe more like a big tent organization where mm-hmm. different kinds of, as you said, political thought tendencies exist. And I think we need that kind of big organization too. In fact, a new party that we are talking about in Socialist Alternative would be a little bit of that kind of, obviously, I, I have lots of disagreements with the way the DSA leadership has approached politics. And I would hope we talk about that as well, because it will be clarifying for the discussion here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the new party that we are talking about would be a broader organization, a wider organization, which Socialist Alternative would want to be a part of. But Socialist Alternative itself is a Marxist and a Trotskyist organization. So we have very specific analysis of capitalism and also analysis of history and politics. And, um, you know, our organization has grown, actually, since we first won that election in 2013, it has Mm -hmm. grown. But it's it's still a smaller organization than a wider organization like the DSA. And I think that's necessarily so. And I think we need both kinds of organizations. As I said, you know, we need a new party and also we need socialist alternative like organization. And and right. the way I ended up joining was, um, I don't know, it was one of those interesting quirks of fate that I was uh, really thinking about politics very seriously from a very early age in India. And it just mm-hmm. so happened that I had to come all the way to the Pacific Northwest to run into <laughs> an organization with whom I com- whose politics I completely connected with. Mm. Um, I definitely want to get into DSA and and also like your conception of like a party and its relationship to Socialist Alternative or SA. Um, But let's say a little bit about what you accomplished during the time that you were in city council and also some of the challenges during that period, because it's, I mean, must have been just a very difficult thing to try to translate, you know, these sorts of politics into mainstream politics and the electoral sphere. Um, You know, one of the things I think that may be known to a lot of people is you came into office as a campaign for a $15 minimum wage was going. Um, I think in the Pacific Northwest, it really started with that airport campaign at SeaTac Airport, but then spread to municipalities, including Seattle, obviously homelessness, housing, and its relationship to Amazon and the kind of Amazonification of Seattle has been a big theme of your time in office, um, which includes, you know, stuff that you've done with renters, with people who live in mobile home parks. Um, but let's let's start with that $15 campaign. Um, so this was one of the, the sort of demands, I, I think, coming out of kind of like Bernie and Occupy stuff, like how do you sort of translate these feelings about inequality into something systematic? Um, what happened with that $15 campaign and why was it important in Seattle? Yeah, it did come out of the whole sentiment around Occupy movement where, it, you know, the uh, the headline was, and this is something that really showed the massive shift in consciousness of working people in America, that coming out of the Great Recession, the banks got bailed out. The very mm-hmm. banks that caused the crisis in the first place got bailed out. Big corporations got bailed out and workers got sold out. There were millions of foreclosures. So there was a deep sense of disillusionment and disenchantment with the capitalist system. Um, but people were looking for a way out of that. You know, what what is the way forward? There was a searching for that and you're right that $15 an hour as a demand, you know, minimum wage as a demand became one of the ways in which that feeling of wanting to do something against inequality crystallized itself. And as you said correctly, in 2013, as we were fighting for our own campaign for city council with $15 an hour as the lead demand, 
the labor movement was fighting for $15 an hour and really many other things. It is a whole yeah. package of labor-related demands in a ballot initiative in SeaTac, which is a neighboring small city where the international airport is located. And many of the workers at the airport themselves, the rank and file themselves, were a big part of that fight. Otherwise, mm-hmm. they would not have won. And uh, And the way we won... $15 an hour, which actually we won less than six months after I took office, itself is a lesson on why we succeeded. As you said, translating these demands into actual victories is not a straightforward thing. And, and I think a lot of people are looking for how to, uh, how to do that. But it's very little on offer, but there's very little leadership on offer, unfortunately, in the labor movement and also in social movements. And how we won is really an instruction in what needs to happen, what needs to change. And the first thing that I would say is when we took office, and and notice I'm using the pronoun we and not I, because it's very, very important. It's fundamental to the way socialist alternative approaches politics, where we uh, we don't look at this as uh, an exercise in personal careerism. And we, in fact, I believe that anytime any leader, any of our leaders uh, take a careerist path, it's a death knell of social movements. We've seen the labor movement decline in the last 40 years because of the dominant ideas of business unionism, which is basically, you know, a, 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 an idea that we should not mobilize the rank and file, uh, certainly not take any mm-hmm. strike action. Uh, and generally try to make peace with the bosses. Well, that approach exists in electoral politics as well. You know, so a lot of genuine, even not a lot, I'll take that back, even some of the genuine people who might have got elected uh, on a well-meaning basis, once they enter office, when they take office, they recognize that it's a big machine of the democratic establishment. And I'm not mentioning Republicans, not because I think that they're the same, but because in Seattle, you have nine city council members. And the whole time that I've been there, I've been one socialist and there are eight Democrats. So our fight was against the democratic establishment and winning $15 an hour required overcoming their both behind the scenes and overt opposition. And the way we overcame that was by using my office openly and unambiguously and relentlessly to build movements of working people and not relying on backroom decisions and 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 relying on my supposed you know I'm doing air quotes here relationships with the individual democrats because that is how movements go to die mm-hmm. so that that $15 minimum wage obviously that that was quite a fight i mean i think it was a really real surprise that it sort of came through and in that very beginning period i remember too there was predictions that there would be you know, um, an outflow of capital from the city. Apocalypse. All, the, all yeah. the employers are going to leave, right? It's going to be a bombed out city. Um, obviously, that didn't happen. Um, nevertheless, do you think that kind of set up this dynamic where, I don't know, employers have felt like they had to then organize in response to that? Um, there's been a lot of changes in Seattle since that time um, with well, regards to no, housing yeah, and capital. There's no doubt that and I wouldn't even call them employers. I mean, they don't employ people because they want to give them jobs. They employ people because they need labor to make the profits yeah. that they that they want. I mean, that's the essence of capitalism. And so the there is no doubt. And in fact, even at that time, myself and other members of Socialist Alternative were, were saying this constantly that 
we should expect attacks from big business. Anytime we win any reform under capitalism, expect that there will be a right. backlash. And that's why we have to keep getting organized. And most most importantly, that's why I'm a socialist, because I don't believe, you know, we can win just we can stay with winning reforms because winning reforms itself is hard. You know, it has an it has to be an all out fight to win yeah. anything like $15 an hour, let alone something much bigger like socialized medicine. But the reason we cannot stop at reforms is because any reform we win, that will come under attack. But we have to be very clear. These attacks did not happen because the bosses needed to deal with the 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 shortage of cash that they had supposedly because they had to raise wages to 15. There is no such thing. There was no such, there was no immediacy or there was no crisis that they faced. The reason these, uh, these attacks are happening against workers is because that's the way that the capitalist class puts the burden of their own system on the workers. So, you know, just minutes before doing this interview, I read, I was reading how Amazon CEO Andy Jassy has just declared that there's going to be 9,000 more layoffs at Amazon after 18,000 that have already happened. And we are seeing this real scenario and, and, you know, envelop the whole tech sector where tens of thousands of workers are being laid off. That is not because... In some city, we won a higher wage or because in some city, we won the Amazon tax. You know, these layoffs are happening nationally and these layoffs are happening because the tech bosses and the venture capitalists are putting the burden of their own systems crisis on workers. That is what happens under capitalism. Mm. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Amazon and the other big employers in town, the the big companies in town. Um, I think Amazon kind of becomes like the avatar of what, you know, the changes that have happened in Seattle, like since I grew up in that area, like, um, yeah, just also because they occupy the downtown area. But obviously there's a lot of other big corporations in the area, including tech corporations. Um, A thing that you have consistently pushed is taxes taxes on Amazon. Um, and there was finally, after much, uh, a very long fight, really, um, a sort of tax on that company and other very large companies to uh, to fund in, in part uh, affordable housing and other sorts of um, welfare state developments in town. Um, talk about the Amazon tax and why you prioritize that and, and what Seattleites are going to be getting out of that. Yes, as you said, Amazon does loom large over the corporate landscape of Seattle, I should, and before I talk about the Amazon tax, though, I should clarify that uh, we, we we should not make the mistake inadvertently of thinking that there's something uniquely problematic about Amazon. What stands out about Amazon is its size, you know, just it's such a massive sure. corporation. And right, location, exactly. I think, right? Just because like you literally see it just walking through downtown. You literally see, yes, exactly. And it it does loom large over people's lives just because it's a massive corporation. But there's nothing unique about it. We should not mm-hmm. make the mistake of thinking that, oh, that's just a bad apple. And let's look at some good apples. And often, you know, people point out Costco as a good apple. But in reality, if you look at the history of Costco itself, the bosses have had a long strategy of union busting using some of the same right. notorious union busting law firms that Amazon and Starbucks use. I mean, by the way, Seattle is also the uh, the headquarters for the Starbucks corporation. Right. So you see right, right. all these corporations using union busting tactics relentlessly employing these same union busting law firms. And 
they are you doing the same kind of exploitation of their workers. It just looks different whether you're a worker in a Starbucks coffee shop or you're an Amazon warehouse worker. Obviously, right. the degrees to which workers are exploited and the manner in which they're exploited may be different. But fundamentally, what you're seeing is capitalism at work. And this is also uh, on top of that in the context of Washington state having, uh, and, and Seattle actually within uh, Washington state, having the most regressive tax system in the yes. entire nation. That was the context in which we, Socialist Alternative and I, and some progressive labor union leaders and rank and file workers and union members put forward the demand for the Amazon tax, which was mm-hmm. a tax and which is a tax on big business uh, uh, and in order to fund affordable housing and Green New Deal projects. And so this is not a tax on working people. It is a tax on the big corporations. In other words, from the bosses, you know, from the executives and the shareholders profit margin. And this tax has been already extremely successful because, you know, it's raising uh, well over $200 million, $214 million in taxes every year to fund our needs. And the the what's striking about it is that the same Democrats who fought to the nail uh, both through, as I said, overt opposition and also really be just shameful behind the scenes maneuvering. These are supposedly progressive Latina Democrat, you know, Democratic women politicians. They have ended up using the Amazon tax to shore up Seattle's budget, the city of Seattle budget hmm. in the pandemic hmm. recession crisis. In fact, the Amazon tax saved the bacon of the city of Seattle in that year because there was a massive shortfall and the budget was cratering that year. And so this has been, this has already become indispensable. And of course it is building homes actually, as we speak, it's not enough. We need yeah. more of that, but it, it was that, but this is the context why it was such a historic victory. A couple other housing items of note. Um, you've pushed for renter protections in the city, obviously the housing Costs. I don't think we need to get into it too much because probably everyone around the country has been reading about how they've skyrocketed in Seattle and the Puget Sound in general. Um, so I want to talk about the renter protections. There's also social housing that just passed. Um, there was an initiative in Seattle that will now um, establish a public authority that will do some social housing development. Um, and, and generally also just like homelessness as a kind of like social, I don't even know. I mean, it seems like the issue that uh, floats over all West Coast politics on some level. You know, you talk about the tent encampments like in Seattle, that's kind of just like in the air as a sort of political discussion point. Um, can you address that? Like what has been your position about homelessness? What do you think like this, the essay or the socialist position should be about how homeless people are living in the city? And 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 then why did you press for these renter protections? And And what do you think the future of the social housing ordinance will be? Well, just to be clear, the ballot initiative that succeeded, I-135, the one you mentioned, I I did support it. Social Alternative did support it. Unfortunately, it has no funding mandate. It's not as strong as it could have been. Um, So I think it it is is a lesson really that... It is uh, is going to move forward. Of course, but those are just the organizational and administrative structures. That does nothing. You know, it's a question of where the money is going to come from. And I think... Part of why that question was sidestepped is, uh, I think that's important for us to talk about, is, is, is ultimately it's a question of political strategy. And the reason the Amazon tax has been so successful in actually providing the dollars to uh, begin addressing the massive yeah. shortfall of affordable housing is because we had a fighting, we meaning socialist alternative and I, we had a fighting strategy and the rank and file union members who fought alongside us 
Uh, and in fact, in, inside the movement, there was a whole debate even in the initial days where a lot of the nonprofit leaders, NGO leaders, and even some of the union leaders, they did not want to call it the Amazon tax because they had this idea. And then there's this idea persists uh, that somehow you can win meaningful gains for working people without courting any kind of battle with powerful people, with the bosses of big corporations and with politicians. We can maybe just just get it under the radar. Let's not call it anything provocative. But that's a completely wrong strategy. That is how then you have unfunded mandates and you have situations where, as you, as you correctly said, Tammy, the housing crisis has um, really devastated lives and we have unprecedented numbers of homeless uh, neighbors in our city. And and I think in every major metropolitan area now, homelessness yeah. has been on a dangerous rise. We were determined that we were, Socialist Alternative and I were determined that we would make this a very democratically organized movement. And really it's it's an inspiring example, even for me, you know, with all the political work that uh, that I've done, I'm every time I think of it, I'm inspired when I remember how democratically organized it was. We had a coordinating committee that was elected by hundreds of rank and file workers and even small business owners, struggling small business owners who were with us, community members. And we had democratically organized tax Amazon action conferences where collectively in these action conferences, Thousands of people participated in every major decision. And that is that kind of accountability is what allowed the rank and file of the movement to hold the leadership accountable, to never sell out. And a, a big part of this was understanding that you cannot actually win something meaningful without going up against the powers that be. And Part of that also was the political clarity that Socialist Alternative brought, you know, because this uh, Amazon tax that we ended up winning ultimately, you know, after the repeal in 2018 was mm-hmm. in 2020 in the midst of the George Floyd right. protests. And I have to say it was deeply unfortunate at that time that some of the so-called leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement actually were opposed to the tax Amazon movement, once the once the BLM protests began, uh, in the with the excuse that well you know the Amazon tax is not a black issue, which was completely contrary to not only the facts on the ground, which which show that the black community, black working class is disproportionately adversely affected by the lack of affordable housing, and more so, it can't completely contradicted what black rank and file workers themselves thought. So we we refused to back down. Socialist Alternative and I refused to back down. And we said, we're going to take the petitions directly to the rank and file of the movement and they will give us their feedback, whether they think this is a black issue or not. And that's why, you know, we had, this was a fight yeah, for class that. struggle strategy, a fight for a class struggle strategy against an identity politics orientation and identity politics of that kind. It, you know, when, when it's wielded against, I mean, it's understandable when young people are radicalizing around issues of oppression, but that's different from this kind of uh, issue where identity politics is wielded as a weapon against working class solidarity. And Mm -hmm. the feedback that we got from the black rank and file of the movement was phenomenal. I mean, there was overwhelming support for this ballot initiative petition that we had to uh, directly take the Amazon tax issue to the ballot if the city council did not act on it. And what happened was we collected 30,000 signatures uh, for the the, um, 
uh, in a ballot initiative. And it was those 30,000 signatures that ultimately forced big business and the, de- the progressive Democrats on the council, so-called progressives, to concede and pass an, a strong Amazon tax on the city council because they could see that with 30,000 signatures, it's extremely likely that we would have won it on the ballot. And with voters right. directly voting for it, and we would have won an even stronger version of that. So, you know, that's the fighting strategy we need to employ if we want to win something meaningful. What did what did that moment tell you about contemporary identity politics? Were there lessons from that that confrontation? Because I remember that being feeling very divisive. Absolutely, there are lessons from that, and in fact, these are these are important lessons for us to draw, uh, for us to understand that. Uh, young people radicalizing around the issues of oppression is absolutely crucial. Uh, you know, so right now we have a lot of young people getting ready to launch protests against the attacks on the trans community. You know, this is very mm-hmm. important. We ha- we saw uh, thousands of courageous women looking for leadership after the Dobbs ruling was leaked. And unfortunately, what we saw was the big organizations, NARA, NARA Pro-Choice, uh, and Planned Parenthood, the, all these organizations tied to the Democratic Party completely failed. They first of all failed to protect abortion rights and to codify Roe v. Wade. You know, Democrats and their allied organizations refused to do that, failed to do that. And then they failed to provide any leadership to the fight back against the Dobbs ruling. And all of that shows you that uh, organizations and leaders who uh, prop themselves up on the on the basis of just identity issues. They are failing to provide real leadership to the movement against oppression itself. And instead, what we see throughout history is that, for example, if you want to talk, take the example of Roe v. Wade, the way Roe v. Wade was won in the first place was not by a few women at the top using identity politics as you know as a as the wedge issue, but instead working class women and other people, you know, including men, marching on the streets and uh, going on strike, you know, launching protest actions. That is what won Roe v. Wade because the Roe, Roe v. Wade was actually passed by a very conservative and Republican appointed Supreme Court at that time. So we have to make a distinction between. The fight against oppression, which absolutely is crucial and it and has to be integral to the fight for, you know, f- fight against working class exploitation as a whole. So, you know, it has to be integral to the fight against capitalism itself. And that fight has to recognize that the ruling class, especially right now, is wielding identity politics as a weapon against working class solidarity. And it's important for us to remember, for example, that the Black Lives Matter movement became the largest street protest movement in U.S. history precisely because it was a multiracial working class movement. You know, people Mm -hmm. of all races were marching because whether they're black or white or some other race as me, we all desire to live in a society free of racism. That unites us. And that unity is crucial to build. And the way to build that unity is to also unite the fight against oppression with the fight against uh, the economic exploitation of working people. And that's why, for example, in the working uh, worker strike back program, it includes both demands like a $25 an hour minimum wage, but also the fight against oppression and discrimination. Yeah, and and one of the things that um, you recently did help push through in this last year on the council for you is um, a bill against caste discrimination, um, which is the first outside of South Asia, as I understand it. Why is that necessary in Seattle? It's really remarkable to see how 
although the caste system originated in in South Asia over 2000 years ago and it was really something constructed systematically by the ruling classes at that time to do the divide and conquer type strategy that we also see mm-hmm. under capitalism you know it's, it's also you know studying the caste system in South Asia is also an interesting lesson in how oppression is uh, endemic to class based societies you know oppressions mm-hmm. don't come about because humanity is just doomed to commit evil but because class systems are evil class society class based societies are evil because they lend themselves when you have a system uh, whose objective is to maximize the wealth and power for a tiny minority at a top that tiny minority is going to have to divide and conquer the masses who are subjugated you know in, in order to keep them from uniting to form a better society and so you see that strategy used even today and so what's remarkable to see is that with the uh, increased concentration of south asian immigrant workers inside the united states you see among the south asian immigrant community the caste system playing out where for example if you if you are an, uh, an oppressed caste tech worker whose mm-hmm. boss is a dominant caste south asian you know so you're both south asian an american worker might not understand what you know the dynamics that are playing right. out but in reality and we've seen hundreds of work oppressed caste workers testifying to this where they once they're dominant caste south asian managers find out that they are from oppressed caste they start getting discriminated against in different ways you know it 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 ranges from being made the butt of derogatory remarks uh, and excluded from meetings being treated as if they are not good enough to actually being denied tangible gains like raises and promotions that the workers have deserved so we've seen mm-hmm. hundreds of workers testify about this not only in seattle but in other cities as well but in seattle obviously it's a major issue because we have a big concentration of south asian workers in the tech yeah. sector and seattle is one of the tech hubs in the nation yeah it seems like most of the the research domestically on caste discrimination has come out of um, tech spaces like with engineer yeah. immigrant engineers and um it, i thought it was interesting the uh the backlash from the hindu right basically against this bill saying that this is another form of discrimination against hindus <laughs> which i thought um sort of showed them them they show, sort of showed themselves in 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 making that argument uh yeah just yeah. um do you think it's connected to what's been going on in indian politics like that oh absolutely are those groups are connected to yeah to modi and oh his completely people? i mean i'm mm-hmm. so glad you brought this up i mean first of all yes i could not agree with you more tammy that they showed what their real position is by making such a claim such a completely absurd uh, claim that is um, you know devoid of uh, truth where they th- they said that it would be anti-hindu i mean it you know it um, it reminded us and we wrote this in our uh, in our uh, frequently asked questions document that we prepared which is it was extremely educational to a lot of american workers who don't didn't know about caste right and we had to build support among the working class to win this and uh, what we what we pointed out was that for the hindu right wing to claim falsely claim that this uh, the that a ban against caste based discrimination would be anti hindu is reminiscent eerily reminiscent of the christian right wing saying that the laws that were put in place against lgbtq discrimination were 
anti-Christian or against mm. their religion because they uh, supposedly want the freedom to discriminate against right. LGBTQ people. And what we said was, of, of course, progressives support the freedom of religion, but it cannot be used as an excuse to discriminate against or abuse any other human being. So it's a very strong position. And in fact, we also pointed out that uh, would they claim that the laws against discrimination uh, against women, uh, laws banning discrimination against women, are they somehow anti-men? Of you know, Obviously not. And I don't think the Hindu right wing, even if that is their position, they would dare to say that. Uh, so I think it's important to, uh, and, and this is this is actually part of the fighting strategy that I was telling you about before, is that, uh, you know, one way to respond to the right wing's claim is to be defensive and to try to legitimize their positions by yeah. saying, well, yeah, I guess you, you, you can say that, but here's what I would say. Right. That is the wrong way to go about it. First of all, it's not supported by facts. I mean, they are the right wing. That's very clear. And secondly, it is, uh, you know, when, when we get into the business of legitimizing right wing positions, deeply inhuman positions, then you start losing the battle. It is important mm. that we on the left be fearless and go on the offensive against the right wing. And in fact, that there was a there was an interesting debate inside our movement, which is very strong. I mean, you know, we we would not have won had we not united Hindus, Sikh, Muslims, you know, Hindus of dominant caste, also oppressed caste organizations, obviously, yeah. that were part of leading this, uh, and socialists and union members. We would not have won without that unity. Uh, but inside the movement, there were interesting discussions happening in the early days, you know, saying, well, how should we respond to these things? You know, and, and there were some whose instincts were to be on the defensive. And we pushed back against that. And we said, no, actually, the right thing to do is to be a strong left and be unapologetic about it and expose these as right-wing talking points, not legitimate positions. It is There is nothing legitimate about using religion to discriminate against human beings. We don't agree with that. And so let's say say that fearlessly. And, and the importance of having this kind of fighting strategy and an offensive strategy was brought to bear actually in the first city council public discussion that happened where some of the progressive Democrats themselves started using right-wing talking points. And that was shocking to the activists in the movement you know, who mm-hmm. had a belief that Democrats are on their side. And it was eye-opening for them to see that the de- progressive, so-called progressive Democrats themselves are attempting to use right-wing talking points to undermine this legislation. And that really lit a fire under the movement and it, it clarified and, and to them how much we needed to fight back. And so after that, we brought many hundreds of uh, people into the movement and we, we had 4,000 people signing the p- community petition, including, obviously, as I said, American workers who got educated about the issue. Were you ever worried, though, that, you know, I mean, because I think this is part of the philosophy that you are bringing to Workers Strike Back, which is to to not compromise and, you know, to stand your ground on on your positions and to be to not, again, not entertain these right wing positions. But, you know, I think like when maybe one of the criticisms of what you've done on the council is, you know, Shama never compromises and Shama um, isn't working with her colleagues. And this is like disruptive and can be very difficult in political situations. So I guess, how would you respond to that? Like, how do you avoid just constantly being in conflict to the point where you can't get stuff done or passed? Um, yeah, I guess, like, how would you respond to, the, to that kind of criticism as you're moving forward with Workers Strike Back? First of all, it's important to point out the complete absurdity and lack of 
truthfulness in this idea that oh she's too confrontational to get things done well look at what we have done uh, by december i will have served on the council for a decade we made seattle the first major city to win the 15 dollar minimum wage we won the historic amazon tax we have won a series of renters rights you were mentioning this before mm-hmm. we have won renters rights that nobody thought were possible one of the rights we won in uh, recent years is what we call the economic evictions assistance uh, law which basically says that if your landlord increased your rent by more than 10% and that rent increase forced you to move that's an economic eviction and the landlord owes you as a tenant 3 months worth of rent people couldn't believe when we won this we won 6 month notice for rent increase and as as you've seen we won the uh, cast uh, ban on caste discrimination which is just extraordinarily historic because it's the first such law any passed by any jurisdiction outside of south asia globally so again you know it's it's completely absurd and it's a again it's a talking point by the corporate politicians and the people who support the pro big business status quo to say well how can you accomplish anything you know if you don't talk to your colleagues or whatever mm-hmm. of course i talk to all the democrats you know i'm i've done a lot of that but that's not where we that's not my conversations with the democrats is not where we win victories that's the point it's not about whether yeah. or not you talk to democrats it's a question of whether do you understand where working class victories are won they are won by mobilizing and organizing hundreds thousands of people and that is how you win victories and i think at this point it's it's become perfectly clear to a lot of working people that the go along to get along not only does not win anything for working people it's actually the major obstacle to winning anything and in fact it's not only that the that this idea of you know go along to get along progressive democrats not only have not won anything they have failed to defend the gains of working people you know roe v wade is a prime example i mean it, the dobbs ruling was a historic defeat for a women's yeah, movement for the women's definitely. movement and at whose door that does that lie it lies at the door of the democratic party and the organizations aligned with them they have had the white house and both houses of congress in many periods in the last 50 years and they failed to codify roe v wade they even failed to put put up a modicum of fight back when the dobbs ruling was leaked you know who was organizing these protests that brought tens of thousands of people it was socialist alternative in multiple cities not just in seattle including in cities like houston uh, and look at what happened to the railroad unions in december they were completely sold out not only obviously by the republicans who are openly anti worker but by the biden administration yeah, and you. by the progressives yeah. you know it, right. and and who who organized that whole trojan horse plan which was supposedly on the face you know on face of it for workers but it was absolutely a plan to sell out the workers and break their strike it was not just the biden administration not just nancy pelosi and chuck schumer who are known pro corporate politicians it was also Pramila Jayapal who is supposedly a progressive she is the chair of the 100 strong congressional progressive caucus all of whom under her leadership who went along with this historic and shameful sellout not to mention the squad members including AOC so, so what is it? what is do you that, think is going yeah what do you think is going on with that I'm- the truth i just want to say the truth is that there is a lot of anger among ordinary people and we have to 
you know, we on the left, my my job is not to not to uh, worry about what the corporate Democrats and the progressive Democrats think of me. My job is to worry about the working people who are looking for a fight back. And that's why we have launched Workers Strike Back. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just say one more thing about that before we talk about your plans for Workers Strike Back. But so so is that your critique of DSA and the progressives? I mean, it basically is just to say they're just going along with the Democratic Party too much at the federal level. Well, it's it's not even about too much. And, in, in, you know, I believe that uh, as long as the workers movement is tied to the Democratic Party, we, we are we, we don't really have a way forward. So that's why. Uh, one of the demands in the worker strike back is actually a call for a new party. Uh, mm-hmm. And so if you look at what the DSA leadership has done, you know, over the years, I mean, as you said correctly, the DSA uh, as an organization experienced, um, you know, historic boom in the wake of the Trump election and also encouraged by the Bernie campaigns. And I'm also myself a dual member, you know, of Social Alternative right. and DSA as are many members of the Socialist Alternative. And so, you know, we welcome the growth in Socialist Alternative. And there are thousands of rank-and-file DSA members who join DSA in order to actually fight for social justice, for economic justice, fighting for a way forward, looking for a way forward. But what has happened, unfortunately, is that the vast sections of the DSA leadership have ended up using their position to give cover to the squad and the squad in turn have given cover to the democratic establishment. And so what you see is unfortunately a pipeline of giving cover to those who are selling us out. You know, so um, after the railroad workers were sold out, why wasn't there a, a fight back against the the AOC, you know, and the squad members who sold them out? Why weren't there uh, any... Um, opposition to their positions uh, on the war funding, on uh, their failure to stand up for $15 an hour and Medicare for all. I mean, the list is goes on and on, unfortunately, at this point. And so, yes, I think that a big sections of the DSA leadership have played an, a deeply unfortunate role. And, and I, you know, there's nothing stopping them from changing it. But at this moment, as of now, they haven't. And that is why I think it's not surprising to see, unfortunately, that the DSA as an organization now is experiencing a decline in membership. You know, that's that's uh, Mm. we we would have predicted it because, you know, people joined it in excitement, you know, to do something. And if they see an absence of action, not to mention an actual cover up for uh, for the sellout by politicians, then people are going to be disenchanted. They're going to get demoralized and maybe even drop out of politics altogether. Right. So, so your new project, Workers Strike Back, I mean, you're going to be on the council for the rest of the year, obviously. Um, but once you exit, um, you will be, um, it's, it seems like this is like a, a kind of new way to direct socialist alternatives energies in the United States, as I read it. Um, tell us about Workers Strike Back. It's, it, it is now prioritizing um, supporting what I see as like democratic rank and file unionism and other um, things that are already happening in the country. Yes, as you said correctly, Tammy, we we have um, we you know we have uh, for nearly ten years now we have demonstrated what is possible to win by using a fighting strategy. You know whether we have an elected office or not, that's the strategy we need to use in social movements, inside the labor movement, and when uh, a working class representative wins office, like we did in our case. And so we believe that 
uh, these ideas need to need a national platform and they need a nationwide platform because uh, we you know we we need the rank and file in the labor movement for example but just not not just limited to the labor movement but that's obviously a prime example where we know that the rank and file is looking for a way to fight back uh, but unfortunately as i was saying earlier most of the labor leadership except for notable and really um, really um, honorable exceptions uh, most of the labor leadership is tied to this strategy of what i would call business unionism which is even the well meaning le- labor leaders you know they end up using the strategy of not wanting real confrontations with the bosses and they look at the whole process of contract negotiations for example as something that's achieved in inside the bargaining table you know inside the rooms where the mm-hmm. bargaining table is they don't understand or they don't agree that really the big gains that are that have been historically won by the union movement is by building the rank and file uh, power by using protest action and especially using the strike action so what we have seen is through the last 40 years you know through the attacks against the labor movement in the neoliberal era and uh, all the attacks that have happened against the labor movement throughout that period uh, we've seen a major decline in employing a fighting strategy and instead uh, this kind of uh, trying to make peace with the bosses kind of approach or as i mm-hmm. said business unionism approach and a big part of that a uh, business unionism is a refusal to use the strike action and that has been a real tragedy for the labor movement because the strike right. action is the most powerful and effective weapon for the workers because it is when you shut down the profit machine of the bosses that you can rest the uh, the kind of concessions that we need to rest in order to win what working people need i mean that's why you know you, you know in in worker strike like we're talking about winning a 25 dollar an hour minimum wage and having you know basically a living wage because look at the cost of living crisis look at the fact that we don't have socialized medicine you know, so the call for medicare for all the call mm-hmm. for good union jobs for all the fight against oppression and discrimination all of this requires the rebuilding of the militancy of the rank and file of the american labor movement and you know we have a proud labor history i would urge your listeners to read teamster rebellion if they haven't read it because it it talks about the kind of strategy and tactics that were used in the 1930s to carry out the major general strikes starting in minneapolis which were the basis for winning the green new deal it wasn't by the beneficence of fdr that workers won the major gains at that time it was through rank and file militancy in the labor movement we need a revival of that so yeah i mean for example i saw that you're supporting um the alu in northern kentucky um just to recap for folks um amazon labor union obviously coming off of the two attempts to organize in staten island which are ongoing um have uh gotten calls to assist organizing in other amazon facilities including this one facility in northern kentucky i saw that worker strike back was supporting that i i think like on the, the critique that you have against business unionism is real but i think on that side they would also say about efforts like Amazon and Starbucks, well, these are great and democratic and and um, very beautiful and idealistic. And yet, um, are they ever going to get anything? You know, I mean, not just the, the talking about like an obsession with what is in the four corners of a contract, but they won an election in Staten Island. They've won Starbucks locations around the country. But 
They're not getting the bosses to sit down with them. They're not really having concrete wins above winning that the existence of the union. What would you say in response to that? So first of all, just to uh, respond to the reference you made, yes, uh, actually mm-hmm. Socialist Alternative is uh, helping to lead the the Amazon uh, unionization drive at the KCVG, which is in Northern Kentucky, which which is the uh, world's largest air hub of Amazon. So it is a major, major site for right. union drive. It, As it, they move it, into aerial logistics, right? It's a very, very huge, yeah, it's a very, it's a very huge importance. Uh, it, because, you know, it's a strategic choke point for the Amazon corporation and Amazon's profits. And so... Uh, it is a very important union drive. As I said, Socialist Alternative is leading it alongside the organizing committee of the rank and file workers themselves. And in fact, three of those workers are going to join us in Seattle this coming Saturday on March 25th because we're doing a rally outside the Amazon headquarters. They're going to be joining us here. You know, it's a rally against union busting and in solidarity with the workers that have been fired, you know, to to reinstate them and also obviously in solidarity with the union drive itself. Uh, but just to clarify, you know, in terms of your question, it's not the Amazon labor union that is running the Starbucks unionizing. The, those are totally different. No, no, Starbucks no. I understand union. that. I'm just saying like that would be the response from this side that you're critiquing as being business unionist would be to say that efforts like the Amazon effort, efforts like the Starbucks effort, they have won their union nevertheless. To, no. No, but that's that's what I'm trying to clarify, though, Tammy, is that unfortunately, the Starbucks workers union that is leading the Starbucks union drive does employ their business union strategy. And we do uh, have a critique of them. Or, or, you know, we are in solidarity with the union drive, obviously, but we're also not, uh, you know, sort of we, we don't we don't make a show of coyness in our ideas, you know, in sharing our ideas. People are free to agree or disagree. Let's have a debate. In fact, we need more debates inside the labor movement. But unfortunately, the reason that uh, the union drive in in Starbucks hasn't succeeded in forcing the boss to the table is because there's been an absence of this kind of fighting approach. And in fact, we've we've uh, you know socialist alternative and my office in fact have really had a lot of discussions with the uh, workers in Starbucks to put forward th- that kind of strategy. And there's been an absence of that. And there are we have a critique of the way. Uh, the union drive has gone in Amazon as well, in in, in the sense that we need we need uh, you know massive organizing drive you know to follow up with the union victory in JFK eight. Absolutely, we need that, and so uh, it's about making sure that the correct kind of ideas that can really come to the fore, and um, we need to do that both with Amazon unionizing and with Starbucks unionizing, and as I said. Uh, we need much more of the discussion about this. And in fact, one of the discussions we are having on a very consistent basis with the workers at KCVG is precisely about this, you know, that we need a rank and file led. Uh, we need we need a rank and file un- led union drive. We need to be very clear. The bosses are not on our side and we need a fighting union. So that has been the emphasis from day one. And in fact, that's why we organized a rally actually just this past Saturday at KCBG. Many of the members of Socialist Alternative were there and also ALU members and organizers were there themselves. And the union drive has become, you know, the union card signing drive has begun in full earnest. But absolutely, I agree with you that we have to be very sober about uh, how these union drives are conducted. And it doesn't matter whose name, which union's name is on the union drive, what matters is what strategy they employ. And uh, Worker Strike Back, Socialist Alternative, myself, you know, we are 
very clear that it's ideas that matter, not the names. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, the reason I was raising Starbucks and Amazon together was just this, the point that like, no one's getting to contract, like no one's getting to the bargaining it's table true, yet. It's true. So, I mean, it's a very, right. Yeah. So my question is just like, in terms of as you guys are prioritizing something like the ALU campaign in Northern Kentucky, like, what do you see as the steps then to to preserve this, what I think everyone would agree is the most important thing about unions, well, well most people at least, um, which is the, the rank and file um, momentum of it to have all of the workers engaged to really believe in and be engaged in their unions and nevertheless still win concrete things and somehow instantiate them, you know, whether that's in a contract or, you know, regulated through strikes or walk-offs or some other activity, like what are, what, just say a little bit about like, what is that ideal picture for you and SA? Well, first of all, I would, I wouldn't put it the way you said, I mean, I wouldn't say that uh, do the rank and file militancy and you said nevertheless win something. No, I would say it is the, it is the only way to win something is through rank and file militancy. Sure. And that's not happened in the Starbucks union drive. And at the same time, rank and file militancy doing it once is not enough either. You know, obviously there was a genuine rank and file militancy in the JFK union drive, which is the reason it succeeded. But we also... Uh, we can see the reasons why that kind of rank and file militancy and organizing cannot stop. You know, it's not like you win the union drive and then that's the yeah, end. Yeah, I of mean, you need to have a mechanism to yeah, win other things, absolutely, right? Absolutely. To, yeah. Yes, we need. But but so I but that, I still yeah. don't. But I don't agree with you uh, with with sort of equating what happened at JFK with the Starbucks union because there was a different approach used in the JFK oh, victory. Yeah, I just Star- mean both well, are co- situations where there's no contract and there's no real negotiation taking place yet. Yes, that's true. But that's true. But I still don't agree with conflating them both because it sort of muddies up the lessons. That's because fine. we do, yeah. we, 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 can, we can be and we should be critical of what needs to happen further at JFK 8. Uh, and as I said, uh, we are very conscious about, uh, you know, in, instilling the correct kind of lessons and strategy at KCVG. But we do the labor movement no service by equating them, that uh, all of that with Starbucks and saying that, well, none of this has succeeded. Yeah, they have not succeeded, but it's for different reasons. The basis of how the JFK victory was won was absolutely correct. It was through rank and file organizing. It was through relentlessly using the Amazon warehouse break room to talk to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of workers. That is the approach that we need. And it wasn't actually a campaign that was engineered by union bureaucrats at the top. No, it was actually rank and file led. So that is a good example. But what is necessary is for that rank and file militancy and organizing to continue. And we absolutely, you know, if, if that's what you're saying, I absolutely agree with you. But there is a real difference between that and what has happened in many other union drives where, and unfortunately, the Starbucks union drive is one of those examples. And we have to talk soberly about this. This is not about uh, any specific union or any specific individual. It's about what is the strategy that can actually win. And unfortunately, the strategy that has primarily been employed in the Starbucks unionizing, which is not really... Uh, uh, the leadership not of the union not really calling for a coordinated day of action. For example, you know, it's a very simple thing. You know, let's do a coordinated strike action across the stores that are unionizing, uh, you know, a lo- uh, around the country. Let's do, um, if, if not strike action, let, let's at, le- at least do a coordinated protest action. Let's make sure that we have discussions with the rank and file in terms of what will be needed in order to actually bring the corporation to the table. And we also have to ask the even harder questions about, was it correct 
as a strategy to use a store by store kind of contract aspect rather mm-hmm. than having a corporation wide contract because one of the problems one of the differences between uh, the Starbucks situation and the Amazon situation is that uh, Starbucks stores the coffee shops are small enough that the corporation can stand to close them down when they win a union drive you know so it's a it's a weapon that they can well, wield. they can so, arguably do that with Amazon as well depending on y- the, the yes area. of course but yes of course but imagine the costs for Amazon to shut down an entire warehouse you know so there is a strategic um, there's a strategic uh, value in actually uh, putting forward union drive in in a warehouse where sure. yeah for, i mean i think like would this... be hard to uh, hard to close down but in starbucks it is a completely different situation so my, i'm just using that as an example of saying no i understand none, but none what is the was... mechanism by which they could have done a national starbucks campaign they, they could have they could have used I mean... that, that was up to them they, that was up to them they could have used a strategy of having a company-wide contract rather than going store by store so that no matter even even if Starbucks used the strategy of closing down individual stores they would still do it i mean they they can still do it they can fight for a, a corporation wide contract if they wanted to hmm. all right well i think yeah we could get into the weeds of this for many hours but let's take a step back just to um i guess like in closing if you wanted to say a little bit more about workers strike back like do you envision it to be a member organization like if the primary goal of it is to support unions, um, you know, kind of what is like its added value? Do you intend it to be a kind of labor party? Like say a little bit about its sort of like structure and function. So as I said, one of the demands of Worker Strike Back is calling for a new party. So Worker Strike Back is not attempting to be the new party. And of course, it's early days yet. So you mean an electoral party, right? Like a, a political party. Yeah, yes. But I, but I wouldn't just say electoral in the sense that our vision of a political party is a party that is not just an electoral machine like the Democrats, which right, comes to life sure. only in election years and just to run yeah. campaigns and build careers of individual politicians. We're talking about a political party that is actually rooted in the labor movement, in the social right. movements, and is as a life outside of running campaigns. Gotcha. Uh, but anyway, my point is that Worker Strikeback is not uh, saying that we are the new party. We are calling for a new party. Uh, and... As I said, we've launched in several cities and some other launches are about to happen. Uh, and it's just to clarify, it's not just for uh, working alongside the rank and file of the union movement. It's also for non-unionized workers, because how could mm-hmm. it not be? I mean, at this moment, the vast majority of young people, young workers yeah. are not in unions. So right. if we are hoping to have a major revival of rank and file militancy, then that has to be both inside the union movement and for non-unionized workers. You know, worker strike back stands with both uh, sets of workers. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, having said that, I will also, of course, uh, say that uh, it it is of strategic value for us to build inside the labor movement because if we can win some major victories through labor strike actions, those will will have uh, rippling effects across the working class, you know, so for example, Mm -hmm. just to give you a concrete example, if UPS workers, rank and file members of the Teamsters are able to go on strike, you know, successful strike, as they've discussed, exactly, and win a a very strong contract, then the that victory obviously will be immediately felt among the UPS workforce, but its effect, its impact will be working class wide and in fact maybe even international because that's how strategically important it is similarly the west coast port work longshore workers 
are go also going into contract negotiations in several months. So, you know, in this year. And so if they are able to also organize for a major strike action and win some victories, that will also have rippling effects. Right. Thank you so much, Shama, for being on the show and for your service on the council over this last decade. I can't believe it's already been a decade. Um, we are looking forward to learning more about Workers Strike Back. Um, and I hope to see you soon back in Seattle. Thanks. Thank you so much, Tammy. Take care.